Amen. Thank you, Quartet. Great job this morning. Appropriate song for baptism as well. And uh, Madison stepped all the way out in the water today, didn't she? Great job. Thank you, Quartet, leading us in worship. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We will look at verses 19 through 21. 2 Peter 1, verses 19 through 21. We're going through our sermon series, eight-week sermon series entitled Asking for a Friend, and we're looking at questions maybe that you've wondered but you really didn't want to ask. Uh, Next week we're going to look at why wouldn't God accept the worship of all religions? If He loves everybody, if He wants everybody to go to heaven, then why would God not accept the worship of all the religions of the earth? We'll talk about that question next Sunday. This morning we're answering the question, how do you know the Bible is true? How do you know that what we have in Scripture is accurate? And it's the Word of God. Now, we would never voice that. We're in a Baptist church. We preach the Bible. We teach the Bible. And and we would never come out and, and ask, well, how do you know it really is true anyway? You never ask that. But maybe you secretly wonder that. And so we're going to be talking this morning, answering the question, how do you know the Bible really is the Word of God? Recent surveys showed that Americans do not believe the Bible to be the Word of God. In fact, most recent surveys showed that that only about one half of Americans believe the Bible's even an inspired book. In other words, that means one half of Americans believe the Bible is no different than the dictionary or or an encyclopedia or any other kind of book. One-fourth of Americans believe the Bible is God's Word to us. So that means three out of every four people you meet, they do not believe the Bible is God's Word to us. Three out of four Americans today. And as a result, there is no standard of right and wrong that's, that's gaining in our culture, and people are believing what they want to believe. And that's a dangerous place to be. I've noticed it's interesting that everyone has an opinion on the Bible, but very few have actually read it. You ever notice that? Very, very few have read it from cover to cover, but they have an opinion on it. In fact, very few have read it. Even fewer have actually dug in and studied it. But they have an opinion on it. I have, I have studied the Bible in, in detail. I've studied about the Bible in depth. I've given years of my life to study the Bible. And, and I want to share with you today why I believe that we can know for certain the Bible's true. Read with me what one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, wrote about the Bible. Verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. But prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, let's look first of all at letter A on your outline there, internal evidence. What does the Bible say about itself? Letter A, internal evidence. What does the Bible tell us about itself? And we see from our text this morning, from this passage, verse 19, tells us the prophetic word is confirmed. The word means sure. In other words, Peter tells us that the word we have is for sure solid foundation for you to build your life upon. And he said we would do well to heed it because it's a light shining in a dark place. The world in which we live is getting to be a darker and darker place. Sometimes the only light that shines in that darkness is this. And that's all. Notice verse 20 of the passage tells us, No prophecy is of any private interpretation. One of the criticisms I hear of the Bible is, Oh, you can make it say anything you want. It means one thing to you, it means one thing to me. You can make it mean whatever. No, you can't. It means one thing. And you may apply it in different ways, but it means one thing. And that's what he's saying. No prophecy is a private interpretation. In other words, you don't just interpret it the way you want. Now look what he says verse, next, verse 21. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. Another criticism I hear of the Bible. Oh, it's just a book written by men. I hear that all the time. It's just a book by men. I could write a book. They wrote a book. That's all it means. Well, it's a little different here. Because in the Bible, it tells us, holy men of God, as God spoke to them, they wrote the Bible, and it is His Word to us. A little different than just somebody on their own writing what they want to write. Now, other places in the Bible, the Bible does confirm to us it is true. It tells us that in Isaiah 40, verse 8, Isaiah 55, 1 Peter 1, 24, Psalm 119, tells us that the Bible is true. This is internal evidence. Jesus himself confirmed the Bible's true. Jesus told us that he, he referred to what it said about Adam and Eve. He referred to what it said about Cain and Abel, to what it said about the flood. Jesus referred to Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus referred to Moses, Jesus referred to Elijah, referred to Jonah. Jesus resisted temptation with Scripture. Jesus used the Old Testament to justify His actions. And in John 10, Jesus rebuked people for not believing it. So we know internally the Bible tells us that it's true. But I want us to go to letter B on your outline. I want to spend the rest of the sermon on external evidence. How do we know outside of the Bible evidence that it's true? Are there non-believers? We know what believers say. Believers believe the Bible. But are there non-believers that tell us the Bible's true? Yes. So, the rest of the sermon's a little different than I usually preach. But I want to share with you external evidence. There, there, there are five pieces of evidence outside of the Bible that show us it's true. Piece of evidence number one. Documentation. 
documentation. There have actually been documents of manuscripts found of Scripture. There have been manuscripts found of many portions of the Bible. We have documentation. Now, Jonathan Morrow wrote, whenever you're doing history, you need two things. You need eyewitnesses who are there. And you need early documents because those are most likely the most accurate. Eyewitnesses, early documents to show accuracy. And the Bible gives us both. Otherwise, if those people who were still alive when the Bible was written, they could have said, wait, 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 that, that what you wrote is not true. I was there, I was an eyewitness. That is not correct. And none of the biblical characters refuted what was written, and they were there. Now, most New Testament manuscripts or fragments of the Bible were written within 35 to 40 years of the time the event happened. Look at that. 35 to 40 years from when the time was written. That, that is relatively soon. Let me give you an example. Plato wrote in 400 B.C. The earliest copy we have of anything Plato wrote is 900 A.D. That means a span of 1,300 years from the time Plato wrote to the time we have documentation of what he said, 1,300 years. Now look at the Bible in the New Testament. The New Testament was written 50 to 100 A.D. The earliest copy we have found is 114 A.D. 14 years. Wow, that's a huge difference. Now, why is that important? Let's say an event happens here. The closer you get to that event happening of something being written, the less you have of urban legends or myths or fables develop. If something happens here and you don't write about it for 1,300 years, you have a lot of opportunity for fables and urban legends and myths. And, and as it goes, the story grows and grows and grows. And by the time you write about it, 1,300 years, it could be totally different than what happened. But when you only have 14 years, you have accuracy. Nobody ever doubts Plato, do they? But yet they doubt the Bible. Makes no sense. Do we have just a few biblical documents or a lot of them? We have thousands of them. And the more manuscripts you have, the more likely that what you have is accurate because you have more to gauge them by. With the Bible, notice this next slide. With the Bible, there is more documentation for the Bible than any other ancient literature out there. Let me say that again. There's more documentation for Scripture than any other ancient literature. Let me give you an example. 
Homer's the Iliad. You know he wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey? 10 o'clock service, I switched those and I said he wrote the idiot. It's not the idiot. The Iliad and the Odyssey. The Iliad of what he wrote, there are 1,827 surviving fragments of what he wrote. The Bible has 66,420 surviving manuscripts. But nobody ever questions Homer. We have many more manuscripts than the Iliad. They all show the Bible is true. Second piece of evidence. Fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. Folks, can you think of another book that you know of that has predicted something in detail to happen and it happened and they all happened? I can't either. Can, can you think of a, of, a, of a book that has predicted in very specific detail? I'm not talking about a horoscope predict, prediction, but, but a very specific prediction of something happening and it happened hundreds of times? There are approximately 1,800 prophecies in the Bible. Half of them have come true. The other half will come true. About 900 specific prophecies have already happened. Let me give you some examples. History has predicted something and it come to pass. One of them is this. The Bible predicted historically that the people of Israel would leave their homeland, be scattered over all the earth, the homeland would become a wasteland, and then eventually the Israelites would be regathered back to that land, and the land would flourish. Did you know that happened exactly? The Israelites, what was known as the diaspora, they spread all over the face of the planet, and whenever they did, their homeland became a swamp in Israel. Mark Twain, when he went to Israel and wrote, he said, it's a swamp. He said, this is the ugliest place I've ever, it's a swamp. That's what it was. And then, 1948, the Israelites regathered together, went back into their homeland. The swamps were cleared, and today it flourishes. Beautiful. Whenever we go there, take groups here, we're going to take another group next January. Whenever we go there, last time we went there, our guide told us, he said, stand in this spot. We stood in this spot. He said, this is the location. The Bible's prophesied would be a swamp one day and then once again flourish. He said, look at it now. Date trees, palm trees is beautiful. He said, isn't God good? Look at this. It happened. Exactly as Scripture said. But not just history, science. The Bible touches on science and it goes way beyond what was known scientifically at the time the Bible was written. Give an example. Isaiah 40 verse 22 says, The heavens expand out and the expanse of the stars. It wasn't until the 1920s that we knew how expansive the heavens were. Job 26.10 says that God has placed a circular horizon around the face of the oceans. Now wait a second, wait, wait a second. 
What does it sound like? It sounds like the earth is round. God has placed a circular horizon around the face of the ocean. When do we, when do we stop believing the earth was flat and the earth was round? Well, NASA tells us that 500 B.C. was when they first started to think maybe the earth was not flat. Now, there are still some people today that believe the earth's flat. In fact, I saw yesterday they're organizing a cruise. You can go on a cruise with all the flat earth people if you want to. There are a few of them still around. Most people believe the earth is round. When, when did that start? Well, they started believing that about 500 B.C. And, and NASA says that by 300 B.C. it was pretty well, pretty well confirmed the earth is round. When did Job write? 1500 B.C. Some theologians say 2300 B.C. So, 1,500 years before we knew the earth was round? Job told us there's a circular horizon. 27% of the Bible was prophetic when it was written. 27% of the Bible at the time of the writing was predicting it all happened. Evidence number three. Archaeology. Archaeologists are finding materials all the time that validate the Scripture, but they never disprove it. Now, critics of the Bible say, you Christians, you just, you just believe the Bible by blind faith. No, we don't. There's evidence. Not blind at all. Let me give you some examples of archaeological finds. The Dead Sea Scrolls. 1947, a little Jewish boy was chasing one of his sheep. He'd run into a cave. He's looking for it. Didn't find the sheep, but he found something else. He found pieces of pottery. He found pots. He found scrolls. And what he found in this little Qumran community outside the Dead Sea was the earliest biblical manuscripts we had. He found 190 of them. 190. 800 fragments are manuscripts in total of Scripture on, written on leather. Hebrew words on leather. Well, critics, they thought, oh my goodness, can't wait to get to these. It's going to disprove the Bible. Because they found in the Dead Sea, every Old Testament book, at least a portion of it. They found Isaiah completely intact. They found at least a portion of every book of the Old Testament. And they couldn't wait. You know what they found? Nothing, nothing contradicted what we have. Nothing. Let's go to the next one. Hezekiah's tunnel. 
2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 tells us that King Hezekiah built underneath Jerusalem a very elaborate tunnel of waterways and water systems. And he did it because whenever the Israelites would be attacked by an invading army, they could survive. They had clean water. They had sanitation. They had clean water. They could live. And that's what happened. And it's an elaborate underground tunnel of water that would cascade two times a day. And critics say, we've never found it. Where's this tunnel? The Bible talks about a tunnel. We've excavated all around Jerusalem. There is no tunnel. The Bible's wrong. But in 1867, a man by the name of Charles Warren was building a vertical shaft through bedrock and he crushed through something and he found this elaborate system. A tunnel system, exactly as Samuel had told us. They cleaned it out, they excavated it. Today, when you go to Israel, you can walk through the tunnel. Last time we went, we walked through it. It's kind of narrow if you're claustrophobic. I wouldn't suggest it. It's very narrow. You have to duck your head. The walls are kind of tight. Still water trickling down the walls. It's a tunnel exactly like Scripture told us. But they didn't know it until 1867. Let's go to the next one. Siloam's pool. The Bible tells us outside of Hezekiah's tunnel was a pool. 53 feet wide. Or rather 50 feet, 53 feet long. 18 feet wide. 19 feet deep. Two times a day water would rush into the pool... And the Bible told us it was at that location that Jesus stood beside the pool and said, whoever lacks for living water, you come to me, I'll give it to you. And he was standing beside the pool of Siloam, we're told. We're also told that Jesus, a man was born blind, he spit and put, put spittle on his eyes and he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam and you'll be healed. And he did and he was. And critics say, we've never found the pool. It's not there. Bible says it is, but it's not. But in 2004, that's not that long ago. I came to this church in 2004. I know it seems like forever, but it's really not that long ago. 2004, a construction worker was repairing a main water break line. And guess what he discovered? A pool. 53 feet long, 18 feet wide. Wasn't 19 feet deep anymore. It had changed over the years. Didn't, wouldn't want to drink out of it. It was pretty nasty. But it was the pool of Siloam at the exact place the Bible said. Let's go to the next one, Nazareth. Critics say, you Christians talk about Jesus being raised in Nazareth. It wasn't there at his time. And critics, for a long time, this has been one of the main, one of the main rallying cries for critics is Nazareth. It was not a Jewish settlement. It wasn't there at the time of Jesus. You can't prove it. We've never found Nazareth today, city of 70,000 people. But you cannot prove it goes all the way back to Jesus. It happened later. The city developed later. And for many years, critics pointed to Nazareth. 
But in December of 2009, archaeologists from the Israeli Antiquities Authority excavating a convent, a a convent built in the 1880s in Nazareth, and they found underneath the convent, they discovered a, a portion of first century life, a strong Jewish settlement that went all the way back to the time of Jesus. And they proved there was a strong Jewish settlement in Nazareth at the time of Christ. But they didn't know it until 2009. Pontius Pilate. Critics for years said there has never been any evidence Pontius Pilate was in Israel. Yes, he lived. Plenty of evidence he lived and he ruled as a Roman prefect, but never any evidence he ever stepped foot inside of Israel. But yet the Bible tells us that Jesus was tried under Pontius Pilate and he was very active in the trial of Christ. So critics kind of scoffed at us every Easter because they said there's never been any evidence Pilate was in Israel. But guess what? 1961, they discovered a stone at Caesarea. We read it every time we go there, take groups there. A stone that was discovered, the inscription in Latin, and here's what it says. Pilate, prefect of Judea, 26 to 37 A.D., exactly the time of Christ. Proof he was there in Israel at the time of Jesus. Found some more evidence. I don't know if you saw the news or not. Monday of this week in Egypt, more evidence of Pontius Pilate in Israel. Go to the next one. Peter's house. The Bible tells us that Jesus made Capernaum his headquarters. And the Bible tells us that at Capernaum, there's a synagogue, and right beside the synagogue, and it says nearby, the Greek word that's used for nearby literally means, I mean, just right there, there was also a house where Jesus stayed when he went to Capernaum. It was Peter's house, and Peter's mother-in-law lived there. And on one occasion, we're told in the Bible, Jesus went over, and she was sick, and he raised her up, and she cooked for them. The only problem is they never found the house. They, they eventually unearthed the synagogue, but they excavated all around it, and they never found it. And so critics have said, where is this house? We know exactly where the synagogue is. Where's the house? 1921, some Franciscans were excavating, and they found what they thought was a basilica beside the synagogue. Made them curious. So excavations continued, and then finally in 1968, some Italian archaeologists were there, and they uncovered a house 84 feet from the synagogue, right next door. It's an octagon-shaped house. You can have your picture made in front of it today if you want, proving, and everything lays out exactly as described Scripture. Let's go to the next one. The Hittites. Fifty times the Bible tells us the Hittites did something. The only problem is we'd never found one shred of evidence anywhere the Hittites ever existed. But yet 50 times in the Bible we're told they did something. They supposedly lived from 600 B, 1600 B.C. to 1200 B.C., 
But then they became extinct after that. But we never had any evidence the Hittites ever lived. And so critics have always looked at the Bible and said, where's this civilization that you talk about 50 times? But guess what? Late 19th century, archaeologists, northern Turkey, they stumbled upon the capital city of the Hittites. By 1912, they had gathered 10,000 clay tablets from the Hittite civilization. And today, if you want, and if you qualified, you could get a Ph.D. from Harvard in Hittite civilization studies. They have that much evidence. Folks, I could go on over and over and over. Archaeology has proven Scripture right. It's never proven Scripture right wrong. Wow. Let's go to number four. Fourth piece of evidence. Non-biblical writers of history. Non-biblical writers of history. During the time of Jesus, there were people who wrote history, but they weren't believers in Jesus. They didn't believe him. They didn't follow him. And they wrote history about what happened to the Jews during this time frame. There were 16 different biblical writers that wrote history at the time of Jesus that we know of. Every one of them mentioned Jesus. None of them contradicted the Gospels. But yet none of them were his followers. You would expect his followers to say what's said there. But you would not expect secular historians to say that. Here are four of them. Tychidus, considered the most accurate historian of the day, probably considered the most accurate, wrote about Jesus. He said he suffered death under Pontius Pilate during his reign in Tiberias. Jesus had a powerful following that was persecuted by Nero. Josephus, go to the next one. Josephus said, there was a man named Jesus. He was a wise man. He taught many things. He performed miracles. He had Jewish followers. He had Greek followers. He was believed to be the Messiah. He was condemned and crucified under Pontius Pilate, and he considered himself to be resurrected. Suetonius wrote of Christian worship. Pliny wrote of Christian persecution. Six, I won't go on, I don't have time. Sixteen different historians wrote about Christ. None of them contradicted the Gospels of the book of Acts. None of them. And number five, the last one. A truth worth dying for. One last piece of evidence that the Bible's true. Don't miss this. Every person who believed the message died for the message. Let me say that again. Every person in Scripture who believed the message gave their life for it. You don't die for a lie, you don't die for what you know is false. You you don't die for what somebody made up. You only die for the truth. And every one of them died for it. That in itself has a ring of authenticity. So folks, here's the bottom line. 
What we have here, totally accurate, totally true. Now, if that's the case, here's the bottom line. If this book is accurate, then what you hear in culture is dead wrong. If this is true. If this is true, what you hear of a popular opinion, what you hear in the media, what you hear on university campuses, what you hear from friends, they're all dead wrong if this is right. They're all wrong. And you have a choice to make. Either you believe it, go by it, or you don't. If this is true... This affects how I feel about abortion. If this is true, this affects how I feel about alcohol. If this is true, this affects how I believe about sex outside of marriage. If this is true, this affects what I believe about homosexuality. If this is true, this affects everything our culture is teaching. And you have a choice to make. Either this is right or it's wrong. But I don't get to pick and choose. I I don't get to pick and choose. I believe this. Now, I don't believe that. But I believe this. No, I don't believe that. I believe culture on that one. But I believe the Bible on this one. I don't get that choice. It's either right or it's not. We saw this morning, it's right. So our choice is to believe it and live by it. Charles Spurgeon, one last quote, said, God makes no mistakes. He gives us a word with no mistakes. He has no desire to deceive his creation. Folks, God is not trying to fool you. (laughs) He loves you too, too much. What he's given you is a word that's right. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for speaking to us through your word the way that you do. Father, I realize that in this word you tell us that we're sinners, that we're desperately in need of a Savior. And God, I just pray that today is the day for those people that don't know Jesus as Savior, that they'll trust you for the very first time. The Bible tells us in truth that Jesus lived a sinless life died an atoning death, rose powerfully on the third day, ascended to heaven, is coming back to get us. God, we know that to be true. But yet there's some people here, Lord, some people by live stream, they don't believe this, and they've never committed their lives to it. So I pray today will be the day, Lord, they commit their lives to what you've said is right. But God, I also realize there are probably some Christians out there, they're believing today what culture tells them. They're believing what they hear in the media, and they're believing what they hear from their political parties, and they're believing what their friends tell them. Father, they're not believing what you've told them. So I pray today that you'll help us to go by what you've told us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.